Hello and welcome to Genetics Unzipped, Genetic Society podcast with me, Dr Katani. If you know a little bit of biology, you might know that the genetic code of DNA is written in just four letters, A, C, T and G. You might even know that these letters are the initials that come from the names of the molecules that make up the double helix, known as nucleotide bases. That's adenine, cytosine, thymine and guanine. But where did those strange sounding names come from? In this episode of Genetics Unzipped, we go from poop to pus to atomic weapons on our journey to learn about the discovery of these vital chemicals and how they got their names. Before we start, just a reminder that you can find us on Twitter at Genetics Unzip or on email podcast at geneticsunzipped.com. We know you're listening all over the world, so do come say hi. Also, please do take a moment to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts if that's how you're listening. Or just tell a friend. Send out a tweet, ping it over in an email, or tell them about the podcast in the pub. It all helps more people discover the show. DNA, or deoxyribonucleic acid as it's more formally known, usually comes in the form of a double helix, a twisted ladder of life. The struts of the ladder are made from chains of identical deoxyribose sugar molecules, hence the name, each interspersed with little acidic linkers called phosphate groups. So far, so boring. (sighs) The more interesting stuff is the rungs, which are made of paired chemicals called bases. Adenine always pairing with thymine across the gap, cytosine always pairing with guanine, A with T, C with G. And it's the order of these bases up the ladder that spells out the instructions encoded within genes and all sorts of other useful directions within the genome. It's a simple genetic alphabet capable of spelling out all the recipes of life. Breaking down the structure of DNA a little bit further, each sugar molecule plus one phosphate group plus one base, whether that's A, C, T or G, adds up to form what's known as a nucleotide, the fundamental building block of DNA. Each base consists of either one or two conjoined rings of carbon and nitrogen atoms, with a couple of oxygen atoms chucked in here and there for good measure. Cytosine and thymine are each a single ring, known as a pyrimidine, while adenine and guanine have double rings and are called purines. And if you'd like an easy way to remember which bases are pyrimidines and which are purines, just use my handy memory aid. Just remember, purine rhymes with turine a vessel that's often made from silver. The chemical symbol for silver is AG, so the purine bases are adenine and guanine. Snappy, right? Well, it worked for me. Today, the four letters of life are starting to make their way into the public consciousness, even if most people aren't familiar with the full names of these nucleotides. Even so, their initials are ingrained into the scientific lexicon and burned into the brains of anyone who's ever worked with or even just learned about genes, genomes and DNA. It's a code that's as inseparable from genetics as the double helix itself. It might therefore be surprising to learn that scientists knew that DNA was made up of these four iconic chemicals, adenine, cytosine, thymine and guanine, long before its double helical structure was figured out in the 1950s. So when were they discovered? And how did they get their unforgettable names? To find out we need to go back to the bird poop boom of the 1840s. It's the 1800s, and the global population is rapidly expanding thanks to modernisation. 
many people, particularly in Europe and the US, are leading longer, healthier lives and not dying in quite such dramatic numbers as before. But bigger populations need more food, and centuries of increasingly intensive agriculture on limited farmland have begun to deplete the nutrients in many farmers' fields. To keep producing enough food to fill all these hungry bellies, they need a way to put nutrients for plants back into the soil and make it more fertile. In other words, they need fertilisers. Unfortunately, farmers in the 1800s couldn't just pop down the garden centre and buy some chemical fertiliser, because that hadn't been invented yet. Mainly, they relied on natural resources, like human and animal manure, and techniques such as crop rotation. But these interventions could only do so much. Then, in 1805, the German naturalist and explorer Alexander von Humboldt brought back a strange substance from Peru that the indigenous population had been using to fertilise their fields for hundreds of years. This stuff turned out to be the solidified poop of a seabird called the guane cormorant, which flocked around Peru's rocky coastline. The dry coastal climate meant that the bird's poop, known as guano, piled up on the shore together with the empty eggshells and bones of dead birds, hardening into impressive craggy islands rather than being washed away. If guano could help the Peruvian farmers maintain the fertility of their fields... Why couldn't it do the same for the green and pleasant lands here in Britain? After a couple of years of successful field trials, William Mayer, a businessman from Liverpool, placed the first large order for this white gold, and the guano boom began. This new era of agriculture wasn't quite welcomed by everyone, though. As might be expected from a cargo that's little more than dried bird excrement, when the guano ships reached English shores, the smell was so bad that the populations of nearby towns fled for the hills to get away from the stench. But by the mid-1800s, guano was well known as the best fertiliser a farmer could get, and miners came from far and wide to harvest the stuff on the Peruvian shores. The demand for guano was so high that the guano cormorant was nicknamed the Billion Dollar Bird, and the US passed laws stating that US citizens could claim remote islands for the country if they harboured the treasured bird poop. Countries even fought wars over access to guano. Unsurprisingly, scientists became very curious about what made guano so great. Their first observation was that guano cormorants ate an awful lot of fish, this high-protein diet meant that their poop contained a lot of nitrogen, a vital nutrient for plant growth, making it an excellent natural fertiliser. Next, researchers peered deeper into the poo, bringing forth a flurry of research and papers published in the 19th and early 20th centuries outlining the molecular components of guano. One such paper came from a German chemist named Julius Bodo Unger, who claimed to have isolated the double-ringed purine molecule xanthine from guano in 1844. Aha! But another chemist, Paul Einbrot, wasn't so sure. He pointed out that Unger's molecule didn't have the same chemical properties that had already been described for xanthine, so it couldn't be correct. Oh! Unger took a closer look. He published a new paper in 1846, fully describing this novel compound. He named it guanine, after its stinky source, oblivious at the time that he was naming one of the fundamental molecules of life after bird poo. It wasn't until the 1880s that Albert Kossel, 
who we'll meet shortly, discovered that guanine was one of the four bases in DNA. Despite all the financial and scientific interest in guano, one group of people who didn't do so well out of the bird poop boom were the Peruvians themselves. The ancient people of coastal Peru highly prized their guano islands and the birds that pooped them into existence. This reverence was maintained by the Inca colonisers in the region, who placed a death sentence on anyone who killed guano birds or disturbed their nests. And that sentiment continued under Spanish colonial rule. But by the time the British had got their fingers into the South American pie in the early 1800s, the great piles of guano were seen as being there for the taking. And take they did. In fact, William Gibbs, who became the richest commoner in England thanks to the guano trade, was immortalised in a common rhyme in 19th century London. Mr Gibbs made his dibs selling the turds of foreign birds. Millions of tonnes of guano were dug up by hand, often using indentured labour, and sent off around the world. The birds were scared away and population shrank as their poop islands were diminished, leaving the Peruvians stripped of their assets with little to show for their white gold than a trashed ecosystem. The guano boom eventually came to an end when two German chemists, Fritz Haber and Karl Bosch, invented a process to grab nitrogen out of the air and react it with hydrogen to make ammonia, a key component of many nitrogen-based fertilisers. And explosives, but that's another story. As a result, it became possible to produce plenty of fertiliser without the need for seabirds or their poop. As for Unger, he gave up his career in chemistry and opened a soap factory in Hanover. Perhaps he just wanted to smell of soap suds rather than bird poo. And who can blame him? While the discovery of the first nucleotide base was almost accidental and its significance wasn't realised until much later, the isolation and naming of the other bases was much more systematic. Unfortunately, our story now takes us from bird poop to an equally disgusting substance, pus. And from there to that most glamorous of locations, the slaughterhouse. The chemical we now know and love as DNA was first discovered in the 1860s by Johann Miescher, a young Swiss man whose budding medical career was cut short by a dose of typhoid that affected his hearing. Switching to science, he headed to Germany to the lab of Felix Hoppe-Seeler, a biochemist whose heart was set on figuring out the chemical components in white blood cells. And the source of those cells? Pus-soaked bandages from a local clinic, supposedly peeled off the infected wounds of battle-scarred veterans, according to some stories. Apparently, Misha even had to sniff the dressings to make sure he was getting nice fresh pus containing more whole white blood cells rather than fetid slime. Lovely. <coughs> After treating the bandages with warm alcohol, salt and acid, Misha was left with a strange grey sludgy substance that he initially took to be protein. But this curious chemical didn't behave like any other protein known to science, as it seemed to vanish when alkali was added, unlike proteins. And it was very rich in phosphorus, which wasn't a known component of proteins either. For want of a better name, Misha named the substance nuclein because it seemed to come from the nucleus, that round, kernel-like structure in the heart of every cell. And while nobody uses the term nuclein today, it echoes in the technical name for DNA, 
deoxyribonucleic acid. Although Misha was convinced that his nuclein was an important new discovery and continued to work on purifying and studying his mysterious molecule, few others were convinced. Being a student, and perhaps lacking the skills or confidence to communicate his findings, Misha took his time publishing the results of his experiments, preferring instead to discuss them in letters to friends rather than in the scientific literature. And even once he did put together a paper in 1869 and sent it to Hopper Sailor, his boss was sceptical that such a newbie scientist could make such a novel discovery. <laughs> Hopper Sailor set about repeating all of Misha's experiments himself, only allowing Misha's paper to be published after his own, noting that its publication was delayed due to several unforeseen circumstances. Cool boss. Oh. So, nuclein was real, but what exactly was it made of? It fell to Misha's colleague, Albrecht Kossel, to find out the composition of this mysterious molecule. Kossel was a qualified doctor, but loved chemistry so much that after completing his medical degree in 1877, he worked as a research assistant in Hopper Sailor's lab, rather than taking up a doctoring job. Kossel focused his research on investigating the building blocks of nuclein, the chemicals we today call nucleotides. But rather than obtaining his starting material from pussy bandages, as Misha had done, he opted for a slightly less grim source, animal organs. He formed a relationship with the local slaughterhouse, who supplied him with a steady stream of body parts for his work. Although extracting nucleotides sounds like a simple experiment, and it's the sort of thing an undergraduate can do in an afternoon with a handy kit nowadays, this was not easy work. The extraction and isolation took 100 kilograms of pancreas from 30 cows, 200 litres of acid and years of analysis to work out what they had isolated. Eventually, the graft paid off. In 1885, Kossel had isolated two nucleotide bases. One of them turned out to be guanine, which already had a name, Tick. Kossel chose the name adenine for his other nucleotide, in reference to the pancreatic glands he'd extracted it from, using the Greek name for gland, aden, and the suffix ene, which means both derived from and containing nitrogen. A few years later, the slaughterhouse gifted Kossel with a different shipment of organs, gullet sweetbreads as butchers know them. That's the thymus to you and me, a special gland in the chest that pumps out immune cells called T-cells. You can probably guess that this is where Kossel and his student Albert Newman found thymine in 1893. But it's also where he discovered cytosine in 1894, which is rather boringly named after the Greek word for cell, cyto. Perhaps he just ran out of inspiration by that stage. Still, we shouldn't complain too much, because luckily for us future geneticists, Kossel chose names that all started with different letters, making writing and interpreting the genetic alphabet straightforward. While the letters A, C, T and G are synonymous with the genetic code of life today, Kossel failed to recognise the significance of the nucleotide bases at the time. Like many scientists back then, and for many decades to come, Kossel believed that proteins were much more important than DNA. After all, given that there were 20 different amino acids and just four nucleotide bases, 
how could DNA possibly carry all the information required for life? If you want to know how that conundrum got sorted out, have a listen to episode 10 from our first series, where we talk about Martha Chase and Alfred Hershey's infamous blender experiments, and also episode 16, discussing how the triplet DNA code got cracked. Nonetheless, Kostler's work provided the necessary groundwork for deciphering the genetic code and unravelling the structure of DNA decades later. And he was awarded the Nobel Prize for Physiology or Medicine in 1910, a recognition that hopefully made all that pancreas squishing worth it. You're listening to Genetics Unzipped, the Genetics Society podcast. You can find us online at geneticsunzipped.com or follow us on Twitter at geneticsunzip. The story of nucleotides doesn't end with the discovery of adenine, cytosine, thymine and guanine. Although C, T, A and G make up the genetic code of DNA, there's another base, uracil or U, that replaces thymine in RNA, a kind of molecular photocopy that's made when genes are read. And we also now know that these bases can be chemically altered to extend the genetic code in some very interesting ways. My personal favourite is methylcytosine. That's regular cytosine in DNA with a little chemical flag attached to it known as a methyl group, one carbon atom and three hydrogens. Methylcytosine plays an important role in that mysterious and much misunderstood phenomenon of epigenetics, the ways in which cells mark out sections of DNA to help them remember which genes are meant to be switched on or off. For a long time, that was thought to be it. Then came along more modifications, 4-mylcytosine, carboxylcytosine and methadenine. They're all quite rare in the genomes of complex organisms and very poorly studied. But it's looking like these unusual DNA modifications may play particularly important roles in embryonic development, helping to switch genes on at the right time and in the right place, to protect the genome from damage and disruption, or even to pass information on down to the next generation. But while there's just a small handful of modified DNA bases that we know about, there are more than a hundred times more base modifications that affect the fate and biochemical function of RNA. These RNA modifications have recently been termed the epitranscriptome, marking out a whole new field of genetics. However, our adventures into the epitranscriptome start a bit further back in time, all the way back to the 1940s, when a young biochemist called Waldo Cohn started work at the Oak Ridge National Laboratory in Tennessee. Oak Ridge might sound like a nice, gentle place, but the researchers there were up to some pretty savage stuff, namely the Manhattan Project, the secret US government research programme that produced the first nuclear weapons, including the atomic bomb dropped on Hiroshima in 1945. Cohn's task in the project was to investigate the biological effects of the kinds of radioactive products that might be produced by atom bombs, known as fission products. 
So the first thing he needed to do was get hold of some different types of fission products to test. But as he soon discovered, the chemists working on the bomb were much more focused on isolating weapons-grade plutonium than providing Cohn with specific purified radioactive molecules for his experiments. There was only one thing for an enterprising and possibly foolhardy biochemist to do. He'd have to make them himself. Cohn spent years working on techniques to separate individual radioactive isotopes, eventually transferring into the chemistry department at Oak Ridge when it became clear he was far more interested in purifying the chemicals than investigating their effects. After the Second World War and the ravages wrought by the bombs dropped at Hiroshima and Nagasaki, the focus at Oak Ridge changed to using their nuclear reactor for more benign purposes, making and distributing isotopes for scientific research. Cohn was asked if he wanted to head up the production facility, but he chose to return to his biochemical research instead, moving to the newly formed biology division in 1947. He decided to investigate the turnover of nucleic acids within living organisms, finding out how long it took them to be created and destroyed, their half-lives, to take a metaphor from radioactivity. To do this, he planned to inject an animal with radioactive phosphorus, isolate its nucleic acids, break them down into individual nucleotides and then see how radioactive each type of nucleotide had become. But yet again, Cohn just couldn't keep his mind on the project at hand. Describing his idea in an interview with the US Department of Energy in 1995, Cohn said, It's rather an elementary stupid experiment, but it was one way of getting started. I never got around to doing those experiments because I got more interested in the chemistry of separating the four nucleotides, which had never been done before in any reasonable way. The easily distracted Cohn started using a technique called ion exchange chromatography to separate out the four nucleotides in his samples. But then he noticed something strange. There were more than four. Almost by accident, Cohn had discovered that there were other nucleotides in cells that nobody had even been aware of. The first new nucleotide he found in 1951 was pseudouridine, a variation on uracil, which turns out to be the most abundant RNA modification in this epitranscriptome. In fact, it was so abundant that at one time it was considered to be the fifth nucleotide. Since Cohn identified pseudouridine, the list of known modifications has just kept on growing, with more than 150 documented so far. Perhaps unsurprisingly, scientists have stopped giving them such memorable names, and they're commonly referred to by a combination of numbers and letters indicating which nucleotide they're derived from and which modifications they have. For example, a recent discovery was dubbed MS2CT6A. Boring! Bring back the bird poo. That's all for now. Next time we'll be tackling some of the myths and misconceptions surrounding genetics and genomics. Are mutations always bad? If you're more like your mum, does that mean you've inherited more of her genes? And is there such a thing as a perfect genome? For more information about this podcast, including show notes, transcripts, links, references, music credits and everything else, head over to geneticsunzipped.com. You can find us on Twitter, at geneticsunzip, and please do take a moment to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. It really makes a difference and it does help more people discover the show.
Genetics Unzipped is written and presented by me, Kat Arney, with additional scripting and research by Emily Nordvang. It's produced by First Create the Media for the Genetic Society, one of the oldest learned societies in the world, dedicated to supporting and promoting the research, teaching and application of genetics. You can find out more and apply to join at genetics.org.uk. Our theme tune was composed by Dan Pollard. Our logo was designed by James Mayle. Our audio production is by Hannah Varrell. Thanks for listening, and until next time, goodbye. <laughs>